everybody, Jesse here from The Best Interest. If you're a regular podcast listener here, this one's going to be a little different. Every Sunday night, a group of seven of us financial educators are hopping onto Twitter Spaces, which is a new feature on Twitter that allows audio chat rooms. Each week, we're going to be tackling a different topic, drawing on our various experiences and knowledge sets. We're calling this show Up and to the Right, the direction of growth, be it personal or financial. We're recording these sessions, and I'll be posting them here on the Best Interest Podcast feed. Thanks all for listening. We had a really fun chat with some really good knowledge, and I hope you come check us out next Sunday night on Twitter. And as always, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. So hello, everybody, and welcome to Up and to the Right, a weekly Twitter spaces where we discuss investing, personal finance, and really any idea that helps us better understand the world of money. Today, we are going to be talking about Bitcoin. But before we go into that, let's take a few seconds to introduce our speakers. And we'll start with a couple of the main speakers today. So let's go with Andy. Why don't you introduce yourself, Andy? Hello, everybody. My name is Andy. Um, I talk about investing money in crypto and making money online here on Twitter and on my YouTube channel. Thanks, Andy. Dave, why don't you say hello? Hi, uh, my name is David. Uh, other one knows my handle here is Uncommon Yield. Uh, and I try to bring a different perspective to money, uh, trying to look at different ways that um, you can leverage your money ways that uh, you can maybe take some some asymmetric risk too. So uh, if you want to just find somebody that's going to tell you uh, just to invest in index funds and don't worry about anything else and pay down your debt, I'm not your guy. But if you want to look at things maybe a little bit differently, uh, why don't you, you know, follow me, follow, actually follow all the guys here. Um, and um, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll learn something together. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. And now I'm just going to go in order across the screen. We got Roger. Why don't you say hello? Hi, everybody. I'm Roger. Um, my handle here is at Upshot Wealth. Um, a little about me. I basically, at age of 35, built a million-dollar net worth, uh, all working a nine-to-five. So it's possible. And uh, my focus on Twitter is really showing people like how they can build their net worth and like how to maximize things like 401k if you have access to them, and just talking money strategies. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Roger. Uh, Adam, how you doing, Adam? I'm doing well. So, yeah, I'm Adam here. Uh, basically, I started doing Twitter, documenting our debt journey, paid off a little over 30 or a little over 31 grand. And now just kind of showing on Twitter some of our financial moves and um, some things to maximize your money. Excellent. Thank you, Adam. Brandon, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Um, so, yeah, my name is Brandon. I write a blog called Rinky Do Finance. I'm all about um, you know, building wealth in a simple way. So if you do want somebody to tell you to just buy index funds, I'm the guy. Um, that's that's my stick. I'm I'm all about building wealth simply. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Brandon. And last, we're gonna pass it over to Shadow. Hey guys, at Shadow Rents on Twitter. Uh, the guy in the group that believes in buying real assets, not fake ones, uh, such as real estate, uh, developed a portfolio of over 1.2 million in the last five years and about 22 units. So real estate's uh, my space. Thank you, Shadow. 
my name is Jesse at Best Interest JC. I run The Best Interest, which is a blog, a podcast, and a newsletter for financial advisors who want to save time and get a hold of their clients. Speaking of real assets, I am fully invested in Beanie Babies. But today we're not talking about Beanie Babies. We are talking about Bitcoin. And uh, we're going to talk pros and cons of Bitcoin. You're going to hear some bull arguments. You're going to hear some bear questions and hear the bulls defend themselves. And I think we are going to start tonight with Andy giving us some overview of his views on Bitcoin, why he got involved with it, where he sees it going in the future. And really just, you know, as, from an expert's point of view, the, the whole Bitcoin protocol argument. So Andy, without any further ado, do you want to take the mic? Would be happy to. And I love this uh, early shade being thrown out. Thank you for that. Love it. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, so I'll give you a quick, uh, like, high-level overview of Bitcoin. I'll touch on just a couple of quick points uh, that I think are significant. Um, and then see wherever else I end up. I'll try to keep it short and concise. And uh, then we can kind of roll into the rest of this. So for those who are in the dark, what is what is Bitcoin? Um Bitcoin is a decentralized uh, digital currency. It is the biggest one by uh, market cap and network, uh, the uh, network size and um, all that good stuff. It was launched in January of 2009 by a person or a group of people um, that are unknown uh, under the pseudonym uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, it, um, unlike Fiat currency, um, Bitcoin is created. It's uh, distributed, it's traded, it's stored um, on a decentralized ledger system, um, which we call a blockchain. Um, a blockchain is basically the way I like to think about it is um, when you have your money in a bank account at Chase Bank or Wells Fargo or take your pick, um, you put money in that account, you have an account number, and they have basically a spreadsheet and they have your name and next to it, they have how much you have uh, in your account. When you take money out, they change that. They are the central authority on telling you how much money you have in your account. Uh, they hold the keys to that. Well, Bitcoin in much the same way, there is a spreadsheet, a ledger, and it is a public one. And so you have your account, you have your Bitcoin address that has your Bitcoin on it and the world knows how much you have. Um, and more so the world at large who are on the network um, are the ones who maintain that. So when you send Bitcoin to somebody else or uh, receive it, uh, that transaction is broadcast across the entire network, across the globe. And if all the people on the network, all the miners, the nodes, the people using it, uh, recognize that as a legitimate transaction, then they record that for all the world to see on the public ledger that you have either more or less Bitcoin than when you started. And that is one of the beauties of, of Bitcoin. Um, it is completely decentralized and I believe largely uh, uncontrollable. Um, another beautiful feature of Bitcoin uh, built into the code is that it is a zero terminal velocity inflation rate currency, meaning the U.S. government prints money. They make new money uh, every year. They decide on how much that's going to be. You know, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to how that works sometimes. Uh, and Bitcoin is not like that at all. Bitcoin is uh, uh, programmatic money. It's a programmatic currency, meaning it has 
uh, zero terminal velocity on that inflation rate. It is known. Um, the inflation rate for the next 100 years is mapped out with uh, mathematics in the code, um, and it is defined by the, uh, the network uh, at large protecting that uh, by mathematical uh, equations. Uh, so it is very easy to predict how much there's going to be and uh, all that good stuff. And so on that note, uh, there are currently about uh, 18, a little over 18 uh, million uh, Bitcoin in circulation with a maximum capacity on the entire uh, network of 21 million Bitcoin to ever exist. Um, and I think that these numbers are some of the most significant because um, when you have a finite uh, asset, like this, uh, there is, and there, if there is demand for it, well, then there's only so much to go around. For example, there are currently uh, 46 something million, 46 million millionaires in the world, and there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Uh, there is, if you take all the people in the globe and you take the amount of Bitcoin that there will ever be and you spread it out across uh, the globe, there can only, uh, everyone can, 1% uh, of all the world's population can only own like, 0.21 Bitcoin or something like that. Uh, it's a crazy small amount of currency uh, of asset for how many people there are on the planet, which is one of the biggest reasons why I'm so bullish on it. Uh, but also because it solves so many problems with our current uh, currencies, current savings vehicles. Um, it's, uh, in my opinion, very reliable, has a massive amount of network effect behind it, has an incredible amount um, maybe even arguably the most amount of computational uh, power on the planet behind it. Um, and uh, that all that rolled into the momentum that it's been gaining this during this bull cycle with uh, uh, institutional interest, uh, retail interest, um, coverage uh, across the, uh, the spectrum. Uh, I think there is a lot of uh, massive, massive upside with very minimal uh, downside uh, to it, which is why I tell everybody that if you are serious about investing, you're serious about growing your money and you do not have a little bit, even 1% exposure to Bitcoin, you are crazy. So there you go. That is the uh, basic overview. I'm sure I missed a lot of stuff, but that is uh, what I'll cover for the opening. Thank you, Andy. Sorry, I struggle over here. I'm still on an iPhone that's like 10 years old, so sometimes I can't turn my microphone back on. Thank you for that overview, though, Andy. That's very comprehensive. Uh, to the people in the crowd, if you have questions throughout, feel free to DM me, bestinterest underscore JC. And we are going to hear some questions from our panel, some bearish questions directed towards Andy. But I think before we get to those, I did want to hand the microphone over to Uncommon Yield, Dave. I mean, do you have anything, Dave, that you want to add? Because I know you're, you're fairly bullish on Bitcoin. You want to add anything to, to Andy's argument, Andy's uh, statements? No, I mean, I think Andy really gave a, a really comprehensive uh, overview that was really well said. Just to just to dive a little bit more into, though, um, where Bitcoin is going and who's buying Bitcoin. Right now, I mean, we even see a really old conservative insurance companies, Mass Mutual, they they bought a hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin back in the fall. You know, that and now for them that's probably less than one percent of their portfolio. But I think you need to ask yourself if Mass Mutual, who's a really conservative insurance company, if they are dipping their toe into Bitcoin 
why you know like why 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 would a company like that do that when 60% of their portfolios and bonds and other super safe investments like what's the what's the reason for it and i th- i think it's because of what andy said there is a limited supply and those that hold some bitcoin it, it might be a really big deal um so that would be the one thing i would add thanks dave yeah that 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 does make sense that does make sense and uh before i I don't want to give away my two cents too quickly, but Brandon, I think I'm going to hand the mic over to you because I know you had some questions for these guys, some bearish questions. Do you want to ask away? Yeah. So my first thought would be, you know, I think, so when, when I, to, to give some background, I was really, really bullish on Bitcoin, you know, four years ago, I was investing heavily in it and what sort of changed my mind was that I reached a place where I was like, well, let's think about this as a currency. Number one, deflationary currencies are not necessarily the best thing because if, if everybody thinks that what they have is going to be worth more tomorrow, why are they going to spend that asset? You know, why are they going to buy things? And then buying things is what really drives the economy, right? Like, you know, people buying cars, people buying goods and services, so a deflationary asset, I don't think, I think that aspect of it, you know, from the from the standpoint of Bitcoin being a replacement for currency, I think that's a bit overrated and people kind of see that and, you know, immediately assume it's a good thing. I think there are issues with that. Now, I know people conversely will say, okay, well, Bitcoin is actually a store of value. It's a replacement for gold. And there just seems to be a disconnect as to what exactly people are expecting. You know, is it going to replace the U.S. dollar or is it digital gold? Because I don't, I don't think it's a viable replacement for the U.S. dollar at all. Any thoughts there from the bulls? Yeah, so I can touch on a little bit of that. Um, so the, the, I mean, there's there's a couple of of thoughts and uh, kind of beliefs behind where Bitcoin is going. And I think uh, it is not a, um, a kind of singular viewpoint. Um, so Bitcoin at its core, um, the base layer of Bitcoin, I think there is a lot to be said and a lot of argument there that I can go into about how that um, can definitely be a, uh, a digital gold, a gold replacement. It basically, in my opinion, uh, solves all the problems of gold uh, and improves upon them uh, with, the one, with the one downside of it's not shiny and you can't use it um, in electronics. But everything else, I think it uh, far and away exceeds where uh, gold fails. Uh, but then on top of that, uh, what is currently still, I mean, this is all very early in development, the big scheme of things. I mean, the, the internet uh, was you know, in, invented and first uh, started in the, in the 70s or late 60s. Um, and you know, we're just now where we are with it. So a uh, 12-year-old currency where Bitcoin currently is still very early. Um, but even earlier than Bitcoin um, in development is uh, layer uh, two technologies like Lightning, uh, for example, which that would be more so an appropriate layer, um, an appro- appropriate technology stack for um, a day-to-day currency um, for use in that. Uh, so I think there's different different use cases for Bitcoin. Um, and a lot of this uh, comes down to it needs uh, to get even more momentum, it needs to grow in size. Uh, nobody is going to want to spend their Bitcoin on coffee when um, you know, it's 30,000 one day and it's uh, uh, 60 the next and it's 40 uh, the week after that. 
Uh, but at some point uh, through these cycles, there is going to be, in my opinion, there's going to be stability. Um, it's going to reach some kind of um, critical mass. It's going to re uh, reach uh, some level of mass adoption. Um, my view is probably going to, be going to become the um, uh, the premier, if not, if not one of the premier uh, world reserve currencies. Um, and uh, and then on top of that, there's going to be all these layers where people don't even know that they're necessarily using uh, Bitcoin for uh, the transactions. You know, uh, it's just going to be the back end of all that good stuff. Um, and so, you know, at that point, spending it, it'll be just like spending just about anything else. Um, and a lot of it will be invisible. Um, but yeah, so anyways, that's a lot, that's a lot of thoughts. I'll, maybe David has a few, a few as well. Yeah, I think the one point, you know, Brandon, you brought up it being a deflationary currency, and that's not a good thing. Well, I mean, I, I think we have to go back in history when we didn't have fiat currency. And what did that look like to people not lend or borrow then? You know, I think... So this is where like my my Austrian view of economics comes out. When you have really cheap money, what happens is people take really outsized risks. When people take really outsized risks, you get stuff like the 2008 financial crisis, right? So when you have a currency that is hard money that you can't inflate, you can't just print more, when you lend, you lend in a way that makes sense and where you don't take outsized risk as a creditor. So that would be my response. I mean, I we had people that lent money and did all kinds of, you know, normal financial transactions in the economy before that. I, fiat money can definitely supercharge an economy, but it can also supercharge it to the downside too. So I think that would be my, my comment is I, I don't think that necessarily makes it economically unviable. I follow. I follow what you're saying. And a couple points that Andy touched on, I do want to come back to them. The two points are mass adoption and then also the possibility in the future of having a system in place where people are unaware that they're spending Bitcoin because some sort of interface that they're using in front of them basically puts Bitcoin in the background. And I, I kind of relate that to the current credit card system. So I want to come back to those two ideas. But we did have, I believe, a request for the microphone come in from Bunk Freeman. So I think Roger's going to hand the mic to Bunk Freeman. Bunk, just so you know, we're quick to cut people off if they go down rabbit holes. So feel free to ask your question. <laughs> and other folks, feel free to request the mic. Feel free to DM questions if you have them. Bunk, I think you're going to be set up with the mic here in a couple seconds. I don't know if he left, actually. He might have just uh -oh. left right before. Well, you know what? I think he lives yeah, up to his name. That is a bunch of bunk. That's <laughs> that's fair. Um, well, let me ask you one question, Andy, because I mean, you you did bring up the idea of math. Wait, he's we, wait, he's Jesse. Before we go, he, yep. he's back. Yeah, he's uh, he's got speaker privileges. Oh, Mike. Sorry about that, guys. Jumped out. Um, yeah, Brandon. I uh, wanted to respond to um, your comment about um, deflationary currency. Um, I think uh, Uncommon Yield hit on it well. Um, but at the end of the day, fiat currency is a relatively new phenomenon. This is something that didn't go into full effect since 1971. Um, and if we look back through history, um, if we look at the gold standard, the bell of pox, so to speak, from 1871 to 1913, that was a mere deflationary environment ever. And more zero to one creations happened during that time than any other. 
And the reason, and got to ask yourself why that is. The why that is, is because people have a lower time preference. It's not a growth at all cost system. And people are able to actually create and to innovate. Um, under a deflationary mindset, under a deflationary environment, we, we will be in a world where you're not on the hamster wheel, where you're not bound to the nine to five, where humans can actually tinker. Um, and if you look back in the history of the world, the greatest art, the greatest inventions, the greatest music, they all came in a deflationary environment. And the why for that is because people had a low time reference. They didn't have to worry about their money devaluing. And I think that's something that needs to be taken into account. Um, and we also got to remember, Keynesian economics is new. This started in literally 1971. And we're on a path right now where we're seeing global, I mean, it could be global disaster. So just my two cents. Hey, hey, Bunk, real quick question. You mentioned something in there. You said a zero to one growth something. What, what was that you mentioned? So Peter Thiel often talks about zero to one and one to many. Gotcha. Okay. okay. The zero to one invention is the thing that occurs that spawns the one to many. Zero okay. to one is exponentially harder than one to many. And if you look back, for instance, the period of 1871 to 1913, there were more zero to one inventions than at any time in history. And that was during the inflationary period. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. And so that's Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, along with Elon Musk, writer of the book Zero to One, if you want to read more about Peter Thiel, right? Thank you for that, Mike. Appreciate that. Uh, appreciate that insight. That was very wise. Very wise. Um, any, anybody, any of our speakers have any, any thoughts back at Mike before we go on to another question? Sure. I'll, I'll put in my two cents. I, I mean, thinking about Bitcoin as a currency. I guess my biggest issue with Bitcoin is I'm not saying that I don't believe in it. I have some belief that it could be the future. I think my difficulty and it kind of goes with kind of what Brandon's thinking with regards to currency. I think for right now, I think the difficulty of even seeing it as a currency is its volatility. It's so volatile. And when you look at currency in general, I mean, going from one day to the next and something's dropping your currency is going down 10% is at least not something we would expect, for example, from let's say the dollar, right? Um, so I, I think that's the difficulty I have with regards to looking at it as a currency today. As a store of value, it kind of makes more sense because you're kind of hoping that it does go up in the future. But we're also, you know, in, in a, I think like Andy says, we are in an early, you know, Bitcoin's in its very early stages even today. So where that goes in the future is, you know, time will tell, but those are kind of my two cents on it. Yeah. And uh, the whole price volatility thing, I, I know that, that that is a stumbling block for a lot of people, but I honestly believe, um, I think volatility is good at this stage. I think you need volatility for price discovery. Um, I think there is a whole lot of price discovery still to happen with Bitcoin. Uh, I think uh, that if there is any long-term conviction that you have about it, um, then uh, that is something that's just going to have to be written out um, until uh, it figures out uh, where uh, it it exists in the marketplace, uh, which I think is many, many times more um, in market cap than it currently uh, covers. And so I guess uh, that comes down to the part where and what you, you know, Roger, you've already you've already said that, you know, you do ha you are a bit of a believer enough that you aren't unexposed to it. But uh, it's just uh, being exposed to that volatility now 
um, you have all that upside, or it can be, you know, you can wait until a lot of that has subsided, until things stabilize, till it has um, reached those kind of um, areas that it needs to reach uh, to, to achieve that. Uh, but then there's limited upside there. Um, and that's when it, I do believe that once we get through those periods, that's when it becomes more of a store of value. Whereas I don't currently believe it's there yet. I believe it's going to be a future one, uh, but is not currently one uh, beyond being a great investment vehicle. That's a good answer. So that's a good answer. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, one question to sort of build on what on the direction we're going. Um, so for disclosure, my if I had to sum up my view, I would say that in terms of cryptocurrencies as a whole, we're, we're similar to you know, the internet in the 90s, where there are a ton of companies and some will be huge in 20 years and some you won't even remember. So my question, and I'd be interested to hear what the bulls have to say is, you know, why Bitcoin? Um, because I, I am more bullish on other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, but I'm not completely sure why Bitcoin has to be, you know, the big one. I mean, uh, my, my answer to this is always, uh, number one, network effect. Uh, no other currency has the network effect and momentum that Bitcoin does. Uh, and then if I couple that with the, um, reality that it was, in my opinion, very fairly launched, um, which is a next to impossible thing to do now that the kind of uh, the genie is out of the bottle, uh, more or less. Uh, a lot of people talk about, you know, in the 90s or, you know, late 2000, uh, in the 2000s and stuff, thing, you know, companies like AOL, these were big shining stars coming out of the dot-com and internet um, uh, initial age, uh, right? And they've lost all their luster since then. But I think this, uh, the, the argument of relating this to uh, some of that period is it's inaccurate because these are all companies started by people um, a lot of times publicly traded um, and this is not an analog for Bitcoin at all. Bitcoin was an anonymously uh, created. Um, no one knows who started it. It was launched into the world in the most fair, fair way possible um, at the time and it has since had organic uh, growth uh, adoption and development um, since then. And based on all those factors, that's why I believe it's going to win out. I think it has the, the greatest head start. I think it has uh, some of the greatest technology. Um, and I think any shortcomings that can be solved by other currencies uh, can also be solved uh, with, with Bitcoin in um, interesting uh, ways without being overly complicated, uh, without being um, uh, muddled down by uh, people who are known and able to control it. Just to, to pick you, continue to piggyback off of what Andy said, I, you know, it, it's so big. I mean, it's just so much bigger than everything else in the space. I mean, Bitcoin dominance is, if usually it's over fifty percent. I think it's a little bit under that right now. If, if you know, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it it's so much bigger than the entire crypto space in general. Um, you see companies, publicly traded companies, and like other companies, like I mentioned, Mass Mutual, like put it on their balance sheet, actually invest in it. But I, like, I'm really bullish on Ethereum too, but I don't think we're going to see any companies put Ethereum on their balance sheet anytime soon just because there's not that guarantee of limited supply. You know, I think EIP 1559, and somebody, Stephen would probably bring that up. I know, I know he's listening, um, where that could be a big deflationary impact on Ethereum. But, you know, the Ethereum Foundation has said, like in the past, that they're going to do whatever they need to do to secure the network. And if that means inflating it, they're going to inflate it. So, and 
too, there's no, there's no, since there's no central group, I mean, who, who, who are you going to, who are you going to go extort for Bitcoin? You know, there's nobody, right? It's the whole network. You can go extort the Ethereum network. You can go extort the Chainlink Foundation. You know, you, there, there are places you can go for other cryptocurrencies. There, that's not the fact here. It's really, it's, it's actually is decentralized. It is a decentralized finance compared to a lot of the other things that are out there. So I, that's where I think that's that's the main difference for me from an investment thesis. And to jump on that uh, with one more thought, uh, the, you know, talking about you know next next competitors. Well, obviously, you know, Ethereum is uh, next on that list when you go to you know Coin Market Cap or something like that. It's it's the next biggest. Um, but the fundamentals are completely different. Uh, you know, uh, B- uh, Bitcoin has a set um, cap of twenty one million. Uh, Ethereum has no cap; uh, it's uh, unlimited, um, and you know there there are dynamics in in that with it uh, changing currently, uh, moving to you know proof of stake wh- whenever that finally happens. Um, but ultimately, uh, just the core level with many of these uh, the uh, the fundamentals, the the basics of the uh, that in that are engineered into it are fundamentally different, um, and I believe that Bitcoin has some of the strongest uh, fundamentals amongst all the other reasons I mentioned. Uh, for um, becoming the, those things in, uh, in the future, like a world reserve currency, for example. I follow you guys. I do follow you guys. I have a, I have a bear question in a little bit, um, but we do have some good questions from the crowd. Financial Freedom Page, I've got your question up on deck, but before we get to that, I think we wanted to hand the microphone over to Stephen uh, at My Wealth Money, who not only asked us a bunch of questions uh, in text beforehand, but Stephen, when we give you the microphone here, feel free to verbalize. How you doing, Stephen? Let, let us know. What are your questions, man? Hey, guys. How you doing? Can you hear me? Hey. Yeah. Yep. We can. We can. Awesome. So like I'm saying hi to you guys for the first time, but I've been uh, tweeting and conversing with you guys so much over the last couple of weeks and stuff. It's been great. So and just really appreciate the channel you guys got going here and uh, wish you all the best of luck with it. And I hope it grows and explodes. Um, so just, I think my first question I have is, uh, is for Andy there, uh, just your, your take on the next five years, where you see it going. Um, I'm not looking for a, for a price prediction. It's, it's, I would kind of almost think like a fool's game trying to predict where this thing's going to go in five years, but just kind of a, a bull case for you, where you think it could go in the next five years. And then also on top of that what those biggest risks would be uh, that could happen. Um, and would any of those make you want to uh, dump your holdings that you have? Hey, Stephen. Good to finally uh, chat with you. Uh, so um, predictions, I mean, I think uh, we, I, 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 I tweeted today uh, talking about this cycle. I don't think this cycle is over. Um, I think this cycle, ha- this bull cycle, ha- still has some time to uh, play out. Um, I think, uh, honestly, what we're going to see over the next five to ten years is uh, just more and more of what we have already seen, um, and what we've seen a lot of this year, which is the uh, institutional uh, adoption. I think there's going to, I think especially, um, and I know you asked a question about him. I think uh, what Michael Saylor did with his company, MicroStrategy. I think that's another one of those kind of watershed moments uh, with uh, with Bitcoin. 
I think that is, uh, we're gonna see more and more uh, companies, uh, institutions, um, funds, where it becomes uh, crazy to not have it on the balance sheet in some, uh, in some regard. I personally think he's, I know you asked about him, I, I personally think that Michael Saylor is, uh, is a bit of a genius uh, in that uh, uh, he you know, was able to kind of see what he saw and make the bet he did. Um, I also think it's incredibly unique, the situation he is in, where he uh, has so much control over his company, is able to do such a, a big bet. I mean, honestly, I was surprised to see something like that so early. Um, but I think that that's, I see a lot more of that. And that's going to spiral into price action and all kinds of interesting developments uh, with it. Um, as far as as far as price goes, uh, um, I think it is crazy as well to make any big price predictions. But I think the cycle, if we, uh, it would be uh, insane to me if we didn't see the six-figure mark. Uh, finally happen. And as far as risks go, um, I think one of the biggest risks right now uh, with um, uh, affecting price and things like that and, and general uh, adoption and general uh, sentiment about Bitcoin is uh, all the ESG uh, stuff. I mean, uh, and I don't think I don't think a lot of it's founded. Um, the uh, energy usage, uh, its um, effects on the environment, things like that. I think a lot of it is unfounded. Um, but uh, I think that the perception of that, of the general public and big figures like Elon Musk, um, who I personally believe aren't necessarily trying to you know, do harm to Bitcoin by saying the things that they say online, but are just kind of publicly learning um, as they go. It's all, this is all new to a lot of people. Um, and even if these people are super smart, they're still figuring things out kind of in real time like the rest of us. Um, so I think that uh, perspective of, uh, you know, it's bad for the environment, these things having adoption based on that, um, which I believe, again, uh, a lot of it is unfounded. I can go into more detail about that. But uh, that is definitely, you know, the news cycles love that stuff. It's, it's an easy way to keep uh, price down and keep people scared about it or thinking about it or thinking it's a bad thing. Uh, when all the upside and all the benefits to society and the world, um, not just financially, but just for well-being, uh, are, are kind of monumental. Um, uh, so anyways, that's a few thoughts if David has any. I would say my, my biggest concern is just regulatory risk. Um, so you, you saw what happened in China. Um, I don't know if anybody's not aware, you know, they, 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 they put a pretty uh, heavy crackdown on the, the miners in China, the Bitcoin miners, and um, they took a lot of them out. So, you know, if the United States is the biggest Bitcoin market uh, in the world, if the United States government, for, for whatever reason, decided to make Bitcoin illegal, uh, we would see uh, major, um, a major downturn in the price. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly confident. You know, what, what I continue to hold still then, you know, that would be a really difficult question. You know, I, from a legal standpoint, would I want to do something legal? Uh, pre my preference would be no. So, um, so I don't know, but I think regulatory risk is, is um, extremely high. I think it uh, becomes less and less as more people in government and, organ and more organizations put it on the balance sheet and it becomes more part of the economy. Uh, but we're a little bit at a, at a tipping point where I think if a government wanted to take a hard run at really um, trying to, to to put the hammer down on it, they, they could. One thing I was going to add is that, like, not even about making it illegal, but like, for example, I could totally see them, for example, like taxing the hell out of it, right? In order to almost discourage it more than make it illegal is kind of what I could see happen. Yeah, as far as... Yeah, I think I think there is it, it, a lot of merit to what David said. I think that that there are some risks with the uh, regulatory stuff. Um, I personally don't believe that the U.S. would do that. I think that um, that would be 
pretty dramatic and pretty crazy. Um, but even if they did, yeah, I agree. It would be it would be uh, bad in the short term uh, for Bitcoin. Um, I don't. I I kind of believe like the internet uh, that Bitcoin is inevitable. So uh, I don't believe long term it will um, stop this thing from happening. You can't you know slow the train down, but I don't think you can stop it. Um, but yeah, no denying that if that were to happen, there would be uh, that would be pretty ugly for a little while. I think another risk worth mentioning, it's, it's maybe not a risk in the same sense as some of these other factors, but another risk worth mentioning as far as mass adoption would be the security risk as far as, you know, people's individual holdings. It's very easy to, you know, send Bitcoin to the wrong address or to, you know, if you're not savvy, give up your private keys. And I think that's a risk that will hold a lot of people back from adopting it, you know, at least in its current form where, you know, you're, you're so very aware that you're using Bitcoin. Eventually, when when that's not the case, um, obviously, this won't be as big of an issue. But I think right now, a, a major issue is still that, you know, it's very, it, it's finicky in a way that fiat money isn't. One thing that Andy just mentioned was kind of thinking about the long term, looking out projecting to the long term. We did have a written question come in from a financial freedom page who asked, are you guys invested into Bitcoin and are you holding for the long term? I've been thinking about getting into it and I'm curious all of your guys thoughts. Thanks in advance. So real quick, I, I can say that I'm invested about 1% of my total portfolio into the Osprey Bitcoin fund or Osprey Bitcoin trust, which I can buy. It's a mutual fund that I can buy through Fidelity and they hold nothing but Bitcoin. So that's my personal exposure. But let's go around the room. Um, Adam, do you do you own any Bitcoin? Yeah, I hold a small amount. It's probably about 2% of my portfolio right now, but uh, I just been kind of consistently buying little chunks. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Shadow, how about you? Uh, I own $20 worth of Bitcoin. Gotcha. Are you holding it for the long term or is it a short term bet? It is going to the moon tomorrow, my friends. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to you, Shadow. No, I, I literally got it for a, a joke with buddies. I have no belief in it. You guys know my, my thoughts on it and we can discuss that later. But yeah, uh, we'll, just we'll, as a joke. We'll come back around the horn to you, Shadow. I know you have a question pent up for us. Um, Brandon, do you have any Bitcoin? No, I'm slowly working to 1% um, of Ethereum, but I don't hold any Bitcoin right now. Gotcha. Okay, Roger? Yeah, I got about um, close to 1%. It's, it's been pretty volatile, right? So kind of depending on what day you catch me, <laughs> I'll have 1% of it. Yeah, same. I, I know what you're saying. Same here. And then Dave and Andy, I mean, I know you guys probably have a little more than us. Well, if you don't mind sharing, I mean, how much Bitcoin do you guys have? Uh, it's a. Oh, I'll just say my co my total crypto because I have exposure to sure. other stuff too. It's about probably about fifteen percent of my portfolio. Okay. Okay. Andy. Uh, and I'll be the crazy guy here. I'll be that guy. Uh, thirty-five ish percent of uh our net worth is uh crypto, with eighty percent of that being uh Bitcoin. And if you uh hop on Twitter and read some of my threads and stuff, you'll see that uh our net worth is roughly 1.2 million. So you can do the math, figure out how much I have. 
Yep. Yep. I mean, I will say this, Andy. A wise person once told me, if you have the conviction and you have the belief behind it, it's not so much crazy anymore because if if things hit the fan, you're still going to have your belief in it. And having talked to you extensively on this topic and, and heard your thoughts, and I understand exactly where you're coming from, I don't find it crazy because I know if if something hit the fan with the market, like it kind of did in the last few weeks, you're still in it for the long haul. And I think that's really important for people listening in to understand is how Andy has done enough research to really believe and have strong conviction for the long run. And these price drops from 60K to 30K aren't really pushing him off his predetermined path over the next few decades. Is that fair to say, Andy? Yeah, and I'll say uh, two additional thoughts on that. One, I don't think I'm crazy. I'm very comfortable <laughs> with my allocation, uh, but I'm, I'm fine with being labeled that by a lot of people. Um, and two, and I know that, uh, and I know that David would also probably agree with me on this. Uh, yeah, going from sixty, our our top of sixty four five or whatever it was, and going down to you know just under thirty recently. It, honestly, it, I just it just does not phase me. Um, and I think if if you uh, if your stomach is churning when these like these moves happen because they are dramatic. Uh, then I always tell people that either you're overexposed and maybe you should reassess how much you have uh, into it, um, or you just don't really understand what you bought. You bought something because everybody else was buying it. And so you really need to just learn more about it uh, and understand what you own and uh, why and why you would want to own it. And then the third thing is you probably need more time in the market. Um, I've been, I've had significant Bitcoin um, exposure for the past four years. Um, and, and uh, in that time, I've watched uh, it go from twenty thousand dollars to um, to the mid three thousand range, up to sixty five thousand uh, recently. Um, and so it's kind of all par for the course at this point. Uh, but yeah, that's just uh, that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, really well said, Andy. Really well said. Uh, a quick follow up question before we get to Shadow. The follow up question was, what was the ticker for the fund that I was using? So it's the Osprey Bitcoin Trust. It's OBTC, Oscar, Bravo, Tango, Charlie. And that, and that's through Fidelity. I'm not sure if it's offered on other platforms, but it's through Fidelity. Um, but Shadow, why don't you ask a couple of your questions that you had pent up for us? Yeah, so I had a question slide in my DM, and I was unable to answer it myself, so I'm going to pass it to you, pros. Uh, someone mentioned that they remember, um, I think it was at Ross Ulrich's uh, Silk Road, that uh, a lot of times Bitcoin was mentioned there. So is there an, an anonymous factor associated with Bitcoin purchases or not? So everything, um, so it's, it's pseudo anonymous. Uh, uh, you, unless you disclose what your Bitcoin account is, your account, your, um, your Bitcoin address, um, no one knows which one is associated with you or which one you own. However, all the Bitcoin movement uh, on the network is completely public. So if you uh, decided you were going to get yourself some uh, illicit materials uh, and you sent a certain, you know, a couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or something uh, over the network to pay for that, um, it is completely um, visible to everybody watching the network to see that thousand dollars move. Now, again, they don't know who's sending it or where, stuff like that. Uh, but the way there's lots of, um, uh, kind of chain analysis companies out there and they watch patterns and what people say publicly and what is disclosed in uh, the accounts they have and things like that. And 
with enough sleuthing, you can figure out um, who owns what addresses and who has, you know, where the Bitcoin that they have is and, and things like that. Also worth mentioning, um, I remember several years ago, you could buy Bitcoin semi-anonymously, like fairly anonymously, but there are a lot of uh, know your customer um, procedures in place now. So whenever you convert your dollars to crypto, there probably will be a trace. And from there, you know, if you were ever subpoenaed or something, or if the exchange were ever subpoenaed or something like that, it wouldn't be difficult to figure out from a legal standpoint, um, you know, who owned which addresses. Yeah. I think the bad guys are always going to be able to figure out, you know, uh, ways around stuff that there is ways you can really protect yourself and get around stuff. Um, it's possible out there, but I mean, let, let's be frankly honest. I mean, I think a lot of the, the, the FUD that you'll hear out there is you know, people buy use Bitcoin to buy illicit stuff and they know about Silk Road and all that kind of stuff. And Andy laid out the pseudo anonymous, um, you know, re, you know, uh, case really well, or like what that is, but lots of money gets dirty money gets funneled through the traditional financial system all the time. That's like 99% of all the bad money. So, I mean, I think it's just, I mean, does it happen on Bitcoin? Absolutely. But, you know, banks, big banks get popped all the time for doing bad stuff. And it's probably the bank that you use is probably gotten popped for doing it too. So it just, I, I, I just think that's, I think that's where that kind of question ends up going, like logically. And I get it, but I, it's just really a, a poor realization of the whole financial picture and what's going on. So, Andy, if you were buying a powdery substance, would you use cash or Bitcoin? <laughs> uh, depends on where I sourced either the cash or the Bitcoin. Uh, to uh, what Brandon said, by the way, there are still places where you can buy Bitcoin um, privately. Um, but they are not user friendly um, and they are not uh, and you do pay uh, fairly uh, exorbitant fees and, and um, you definitely pay above market rate to enjoy that privacy. And also, there are ways to privately send and receive Bitcoin. Um, and that's a whole nother deep dig into thing in something called CoinJoin. Um, but there are ways to totally be off the grid with Bitcoin. Um, but that all takes a lot more work. And that is definitely not becoming the mainstream yeah Sh shadow real quick i mean i buy powdery stuff every week uh at the grocery store using a credit card that's just me personally but i know you know i don't know if that helps your question or not um, yeah i was wanting to bake so powdered sugar was was definitely on the list i appreciate that <laughs> i don't know if they have credit cards down there but that's what i use it's just me um, Adam, I know Adam had a question pent up for us. I want to pass the mic over to Adam. And then I think Aman, I know we've got you. We, we see a question coming in from you and Steven, we see one from you as well. So Adam first, and we'll go from there. So my question for Andy and Dave would be, where do you guys kind of see like companies accepting Bitcoin? Is it going to be something that kind of just gradually grows or, um, something that kind of is like, we see a period where there's kind of an overnight shift type thing. I know I, Tesla was taking it for a little bit. I believe they aren't anymore. But my curiosity is just the currency usage, like somebody using that at a grocery store or something along those lines. So I, I think we're still really early with the currency uh, aspect of it. Um, I think that's going to, uh, we still need a lot more um, 
uh, kind of price discovery and um, more adoption with companies, institutions and stuff like that before we get really into that. But I, again, I think that's going to be um, the, uh, the technology that are built on top of uh, Bitcoin, um, like the Lightning Network. And right now there's some amazing companies like, um, like Strike is a great company if you want to look into that's a payments company. And they're building, um, uh, you know, person-to-person uh, payment uh, network on top of Bitcoin using Lightning Network, and it's instantaneous. Uh, it's um, the the model they're doing, I believe, is completely fee-free, um, and it's it's pretty amazing. And I think that when what we're going to see is, I don't think it's going to be overnight. I think it's going to be gradual. But once we see that kind of uh, terminal uh, velocity, critical mass, kind of moment pushing uh, Bitcoin over the top and then little by little companies will start start uh, adopting it, uh, accepting it as pay, uh, with payments, it's going to be through technologies like that where there's going to be some app or some uh, slick interface uh, and uh, Bitcoin is going to be the back end, but you're largely unaware that you're using it to transact um, uh, to uh, to do that kind of person to person or company to company or purchase, or purchase um, uh, product um transaction yeah i think it's i think we're still a ways away you know um and i think right now i mean there it, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with el salvador you know they just they just made it legal tender down there you know so what, what will that adoption look like down there the the, the government seems to be pretty um pr- pretty bent on uh, really trying to make it happen so that's really interesting there's like a um, so, but I think right now too, like every time, so let's say you bought Bitcoin, you know, and you're early, like, like Andy or some of the other people that are listening and you got, you bought it around 3000, well, it's 30,000. Now, if you spend that money, you're going to have a taxable event at that point you know, so are, are you, are you going to want to incur that, you know, or are you going to use the money that you have in your account? So I think you know, to Andy's point, until this is like a really stable thing, it, it doesn't really make sense. And it's just, unless laws continue to change. It's, it could be just an expensive way to transact just from a tax standpoint, too. So are you guys saying that you're going to see this end up uh, 20 years from now, just swiping like a credit card at the local grocery and walking out? 100%. I've got a question about that, Andy. I do. I really do. I hope we have time for it, but I do want to have our listeners have some questions first. The first one is a question in passing. And it made me laugh out loud. So this is from Clint. This is uh, at Clint Robert M. Who asked, why do only three of us in the chat have laser eyes? So Finance 99, I see you, Clint, and then the hipster finance. You guys have laser eyes. The question is, Andy, an uncommon yield, where are your laser eyes right now? <laughs> laser eyes represent. <laughs> I, get, I, think, I think Andy's are covered up by his cool shades. So. Yeah, they're back there. You just can't That's see fair. it. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. That's a great question. Um, Roger, did we want to try to pass the microphone over to Aman for his question? Yeah, let's do it. And Aman, I'm sorry, is if it's pronounced differently or Amen, please, please correct me. Hey guys, uh, my name is Aman Singh. Uh, and I have a channel called Crush the Wealth Gap. I wanted to um, ask a question, and, and this is kind of how I'm thinking about uh, uh, technology and kind of Bitcoin and the overall trend. Um, and so I kind of want to not dive so much into like, the details of things and sort of I kind of shy away from any small details 
like daily, minute by minute, those kind of things. I'm zooming to, to five year, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year time frames. So as a macro trend, technology is a huge trend that we, our species entirely would be moving in the, the century in technology. Like we will have better technology in 50 years, right? All of us would say that. Like anybody not saying that would probably be a doomsday person thinking we have some kind of nuclear war and then we'll go back to sticks and stones. So there's ways of classifying certain civilizations by the amount of energy they're able to use, right? So there's a type of civilization that can use planetary energy to do whatever it needs to do. I believe the internet is one of those technologies which is using energy from the world to provide all services all over the world. Internet native currency called Bitcoin has emerged with 1% or less ownership in the world right now. So when I thought about this a little bit and I realized, and I was a, I thought Bitcoin was a joke from 2014. And um, when I, when I kind of thought about this and I kind of said, okay, well, is this something that's going to be here to, for long term, right? Um, and the, hey, the mechanics. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no. I mean, I follow what you're saying, and it is you're making good points. I'm just, what, what, what's your question for us? Oh, well, my question is, what the people's think of Bitcoin in the manner where it's something that is to be looked at as a, well, it's gone up, you know, fifty you know, thousand percent in the last 10 years or whatnot. Or is it that, or are you guys thinking about it that in th those terms that these this thing is going up and you should own a piece of it and maybe speculate in it? Or do you see it as a macro trend, like as if you're owning a piece of the internet back in 1990s? Because that's how I see it. That That is a great question. That is a great question. So do you see it as owning a piece of the future, essentially owning a piece of a, big macro trend, a shift in society. Andy, how do you see it? It's like buying Manhattan real estate in the 1800s. Exactly. It's even bigger than that, apparently. Yeah. I mean, per I'm not, I'm not personally that optimistic. Like I own 1% of my portfolio is in Bitcoin. I'm not necessarily that optimistic about it as you guys are. But I do see it as owning, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here, but it's like owning owning a rubber factory before cars, where it's like, okay, it's going to be important. I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's uh, stitched into the fabric of the future in the way that maybe, you know, maybe Aman, Aman and, and Andy think, but it's possible. It is possible. So, I mean, I do, I do enjoy hearing your guys' enthusiasm for it, and it certainly has rubbed off on me. What do some of our other speakers think about uh, owning Bitcoin right now? So I used to have, um, I like the vast majority of my portfolio used to be in Bitcoin when I was like 20. Um, and I found that it was really fun to have a piece of this thing because there's a huge culture around it. Um, you know, I think there's something to be said, and I understand the desire to you know be part of it whether or not you really think it's going to be huge in 20 years, I think there's something to be said because I do think blockchain technology will be huge. And so there is something to be said for having a piece of that now and in its current iteration, I think, just from an, an enjoyment standpoint. Yeah. And 
I want to jump on that too. I think um, I, I hear a lot of people who will say basically what Brandon just said, which is, you know, uh, big on blockchain technology, um, less so on Bitcoin. And I think blockchain is amazing technology, um, but I think it's probably incredibly overhyped um, and doesn't have nearly the use case that everyone thinks it does. Uh, I think most of the use cases for many of the utility tokens and other cryptocurrencies out there uh, would be better utilized, not on a decentralized uh, ledger, but on a centralized, well-built database. Um, I think that that aspect of it is um, wholly overrated. Um, But I think Bitcoin as a uh, currency, it is a perfect use of that technology. And given uh, its current status, I think that it'll be one of the defining uses of that of that technology. Um, and Jesse, you need more than a 1% uh, allocation. So guys, I'd love to jump in here. So as somebody who is completely bearish on the topic, I own over a million dollars in real estate. We all know this 22 doors. I own something I can touch. And if we're using Bitcoin as a currency, I don't see there being an argument to where you can compare them equally. But if we're talking about holding them in a portfolio like an investment or an asset, then you should be able to compare them. So how can you sell to me, Andy, or anyone else that owning an imaginary asset is as important or more important than owning real estate, which is also a finite asset? So I'll briefly jump over to the the bull side and say like, well, then you could make the same argument for stocks, right? Like, and, and I know people who make that argument. They don't want to own stocks because they'd rather own real estate that they can touch. But stock is owning a part of an actual company. So it's still a real asset there in the grand scheme of things. Fair point, yeah. Yeah, but it's 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 an imaginary piece of, of, of a real thing. And the real thing itself is a bunch of people making up ideas and selling it to the world. So it's just as made up, really. It's just got people behind it directly uh, working on it where you can see their faces and stuff. Whereas Bitcoin has people working on it too. You just don't know who all of them are. Uh, but as far as the whole imaginary thing, whatever, I mean, it's like it's like a website, you know. It's out there. You can't touch it, but we see where the internet has gone. Uh, the world's going digital. Um, we live in an, internet, uh, in an international and internet society now. So that's only going to be exacerbated going forward. Um, and also, when it comes to like the argument of uh, having some exposure to it, uh, I like to think about it like this. If you took 1% of your net worth, or even half a percent, but I mean, what you know, 1%, let's just use that, um, and bought some Bitcoin, what's your downside? You, you, it goes to zero in some hypothetical situation, and you uh, lose 1% of your net worth to that. I mean, that can happen with market fluctuations on anything you own. But the upside is so immense. I mean, we're talking about if this thing eats uh, the market caps of things like gold, well, then one Bitcoin is worth $500,000 per coin. The upside is immense, and it's it's so unbelievable, um, the, the upside, that I just can't ignore having uh, some exposure to it. And I think anybody who is a reasonable investor and wants to grow their money, that upside to downside um, equation in your head uh, has got to be uh, very hard to ignore. So if I'm hearing you, you're saying it as an asset you would still recommend it no matter what just as a coin flip in a small amount of your overall portfolio is that correct 
Oh, definitely. I mean, I can make arguments for everything beyond that, but yeah, just at its at its, at its core, sure, definitely. Appreciate it. Yeah. Real quick, everybody. I mean, for people listening in, I think we can't thank you enough for joining us for this hour. And because we still have a few questions in the queue and this conversation has been so lively, we're going to stick around for a few more minutes because we're all enjoying it. I hope you're enjoying it too. If you are enjoying it, please feel free, please give us a follow, you know, especially, you know, Andy and, and Dave for leading this conversation. But as wise and Andy as Dave are about Bitcoin, the other folks here who have been speaking today have their own sets of knowledge that can improve and have improved my life and I think can improve your lives too. Um, so thank you for sticking around. We're going to be here for a few more minutes. Clint, I just saw your DM come in. Clint, to be honest with you, you're like fourth or fifth in line. I'm not sure we're going to get to you. So I might suggest feel free to reach out to Shadow directly. I think Shadow Clint had some ideas for you. Um, Nyan, Nyan, I think we're going to give you the microphone next. But before we do, we had a question that's been waiting in DMs for a while. And that question is, how can we use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange if governments, especially big governments, are not yet accepting it? So even if a poorer country, a poorer country, like, say, El Salvador, starts accepting it, will it really have a big effect until the bigger countries give Bitcoin the green light? Any thoughts on that macro question, Dave or Andy? Uh, sorry, mine cut out for a split second. Can you repeat the second? Or I didn't hear the second half of that. I'm sorry. So the, the question in short is, will Bitcoin have a long-term store, uh, long-term value until big countries start to adopt it? Really, I think what it means is until they accept it as a way of paying taxes. Will it have more upside until then? No. Will it have a future until then? You know, can we can we depend on a can a poorer country adopt Bitcoin, or does it have to wait until really a bigger country does, until the world economy does from a from a bigger country? I mean, I think we're seeing that play out in real time right now. I think that that I think that this small country adoption is uh, part of that kind of uh, momentum shift uh, when someone like when some uh, place like El Salvador says, "Hey, this is actually a uh, this is a currency." Uh, this um, we are ex we are recognizing it as such. Well, then a bunch of other countries then have to decide how they're going to interpret that. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think real momentum will come when some large com uh, countries uh, decide to give it that same uh, credibility. Um, but uh, no, I think it's inevitable either way. Okay, thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andy. I followed that. Um, Roger, do we want to hand the microphone over to Nyan? I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name, Nyan. But uh, yep, I, I just did. Yep. Perfect. Hey guys, can hey. you hear me? Yes. So yeah, so I'm a big believer in crypto uh, in general, and uh, I'm an investor in Bitcoin and Ethereum. So my question is very straightforward. I just want to know how Andy or uh, the Uncommon Yield, uh, you guys decide if you have, let's say, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars lying around on your checking account, and you want to put it on Bitcoin. How do you decide, uh, like, what price is good for buying? Uh, by, by the dip. 
Yeah, no, I just dollar cost average. You know, I, I've been, I've been, um, I mean, that's, you can, there's a lot of really cool calculators out there. If you have a big chunk of money out there, it's really, the, the, the market is so volatile. If you've followed it for any period of time, the price swings are massive. Um, just dollar cost average. I mean, that, that, that's the best buying strategy for really any accumulating any asset that you, that you want to buy. So don't buy the top. Don't try to buy the top or sell the top. Don't try to buy the bottom. You know, just 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 get in a little bit over time. Got it. And hey, Nyan. Hey, hey. Good, to, good to hear from you, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, and actually, Jesse um, on his blog has a great blog post on um, Bitcoin buying. Um, and uh, based on that, I would say two things. One, uh, just what David said: uh, dollar cost averaging. That's what I do. Um, and two, if you just have a big chunk of money, uh, there's two ways to handle it. One, just go ahead and buy and just get in the market as soon as possible and just wait it out long term. Uh, that's going to be a positive over the long haul. Uh, or two, if that gives you any worry, well, then just resort to answer number one, which is dollar cost average, and just sit that into the account. Uh, span that out over the period of time, uh, which it'll last, and then uh, just automatically buy based on that. That makes sense. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thank you for the question. I actually I just tweeted at you the article that Andy was speaking about. So give it a read and, and let me know if you have any questions on that. In short, dollar cost averaging over the history of Bitcoin has proven to be a better strategy than waiting for dips because essentially Bitcoin has been running away from us. And sometimes you'll be waiting for a dip and the dip never really comes or it comes too late and you would have been better off buying the entire time. Um. Roger, I think you had mentioned, Roger, we have a question, another question from Steven. Is that right? That's correct. Hey, hey Steven. Um, quick question for uh, David and then Common Yield. Um, so I got this uh, email from... Uh, one of the exchanges, uh, and they said, hey, and they're a reputable one. Um, deposit your uh, Bitcoin in here, and we'll give you a 7% yield over uh, 90 days. And I know uh, you're into this, um, the lending and the yield with crypto, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin or uh, and such. So I'm just, I'm curious the inner workings of how they can, uh, pay me back at seven percent annual on Bitcoin, given deflationary currency and such a high yield when interest rates are so low right now. So I'm just curious, is, is somebody paying them a higher percentage than Bitcoin? Yeah, no, that's a, that's or a great how are that's they a great question. Paying that money? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Stephen. So this is essentially what they're doing is. Uh, you look at fully paid securities lending. That, that's essentially what they're doing. Except that, that's what uh, exchanges do um, in the stock market. So that's why so many exchanges can offer free, um, you know, free free trades. Is they do fully paid security lending on the back end. You never see it. They lend out your your stocks all the time, make money off of it, and uh, you never see a penny. So if that's the case, I would encourage you to find an exchange that. Um, or a, a brokerage house, even with stocks that, that offer you that, that opportunity to let you participate in that yield. But they're, they're doing the same thing. So uh, companies like BlockFi or Celsius or 
um, Nexo, Lend, Voyager. There's there's a bunch of them. Um, what what they do is they Bitcoin is a really thinly traded um, asset. Uh, so this is going to get kind of technical. So if you you all aren't following, I apologize. This is going to be kind of like the quick and dirty since we're close on time. But it's the float is really small. So that's like the amount of um, Bitcoin that's getting traded on these exchanges. So if you're an exchange, if you're Coinbase or Binance or whatever, you need enough liquidity in those markets for folks to be able to buy and sell. If they if you don't have enough liquidity for folks to be able to buy and sell on your exchange, you're not going to be able to make money. One and then two, they're going to get shut down. Like there's like the infamous like Coinbase outages that happen whenever Bitcoin's like really running or really crashing, uh, it, it magically just shuts down, right? So these exchanges pay an exorbitantly high fee to uh, places places like BlockFi, like Genesis Capital is another really big one, to um, to to be able to float enough Bitcoin to have liquidity in their exchanges. If you look at any of the DeFi protocols that are out there too. Uh, the yields are super high. I mean, there's like 20%, 80%, 100% in some of these liquidity pools. And like, I be very careful. They're super risky. But the reason why they're so high is because there's such a great demand for liquidity in that market. So one of the things that we were, that we're seeing happening in the these lending markets is BlockFi just had their rates come out and they lowered. And that's because one, there's more and more people wanting to lend their Bitcoin there's more competition coming out um, to lend Bitcoin to these big entities. And then three, like the, the price is going down. So people wanting to, to borrow, the volume is a lot less. So there's less demand. So that's kind of the quick and dirty answer. But if you um, search for fully paid securities lending, you can get a pretty good feel for what exactly like is happening from a mechanic standpoint. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's, it, you you kind of read the the worry or concern there, right? Where it's like it's really high yield and almost makes it kind of sound like a scam sort of thing. And um, I mean, so far so good. You know, everyone's tweeting and talking about uh, the different high yields on USDT, et cetera, et cetera. We don't, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm just, you know, somebody has to pay the bill, and I'm just concern just counterparty risk on that and just somebody's like oh i i can't make the payment you know there's not enough got mined or whatever i can't i can't pay that and then just contagion hits and the whole thing starts to escalate and domino and um that sort of thing and then so yeah thanks, thanks. yeah I'll, I'll try to post uh, a few um podcasts after this they kind of go through some of at least the the business model for BlockFi. like i've used them a lot uh, in the past and I dove down pretty deep, so um, it, it it'll help make a little bit more sense. Um, I, I definitely understand how the people can be reticent, you know, and and seeing the yields that are that are so high, but they do make sense when you kind of start to understand the market. You understand how thinly traded it is, and you kind of pair that with like fully paid securities lending that is like a normal market making activity that happens all the time in the stock market. David, would you say that the those services that the yield that they pay is an uncommon yield? It is a hundred percent an uncommon yield, Andy. <laughs> Andy, we're gonna kick you off. Get out. Get out, Andy. <laughs> I accept this. <laughs> um, 
Dave, I'd certainly be interested in hearing you talk about the business model of BlockFi because it's a great question, Stephen. I've had the same questions, almost like, where are these yields coming from exactly? And and when when I don't have the answer, because I, I don't have a good answer and I haven't committed the time to finding the answer, part of my brain says, boy, it sure sounds like a pyramid scheme. So I, I would love to hear I would love to hear your thoughts and, and on explaining why it's not that. Um, I would certainly benefit from that. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can cue that up for a, a podcast in the future, and you guys can pepper me with questions and, and figure out where what I don't know. I think that'd be fun. Very cool. Very cool. I mean, let let me let me put plant this flag in the ground. Like, I still have a few questions lined up, but it's gonna take us till like eleven thirty my time to get there. So I almost feel like we should save them for another round. But I want to go around the room. I mean, any questions right now while we're still going from from anybody else on the on the speaker microphone? If, if I could, I want to know, Andy, do you think your experience with uh, with Pirate, you know what I'm talking about, the crash in the crypto winter, do you think there's a possibility of that happening again? Uh, so two things there. You said you thought you were asking about uh, Pirate again and you're asking. Um, no, more just like, well, I find your story with Pirate very uh unique, inspiring, and, and really keen business sense on that. I know it's a separate topic, maybe for a different session and stuff, but I think there's a lot of principles and a lot to learn with what you did there with that. But just, I guess, just do you see, I know you mentioned earlier, bull run, we're not out of this, but do you see any kind of sharp downturn in the medium term uh, in order to get there eventually? Uh, so in the near term, no, I think we still, I, I think that we're going to have a few more corrections, certainly, uh, but no, nothing like what we uh, we. I don't think we're quite ready to go into another bear market. But I do believe, absolutely, yes, we're going to have another uh, down market. I, I don't know if it's going to play out like the last one did or not. Um, but I, I'm convinced we will see that again. It seems uh, crypto seems to just love the cycle and hasn't given it up yet, at least uh, at this at this stage of the game. Um, and based on the the last one, I think that um, uh, if and when that happens again. There's going to be tons of wonderful opportunity if you are, uh, if you have conviction, if you're able to, if you have, if you have any money left over, uh, if you're able to, um, you know, pick up some stuff at an extreme discount, and uh, and uh, wait out for the, you know, several years you have to wait until the next uh, bull cycle after that. Um, and the thing that uh, Stephen is asking me about specifically is I did a thread on a uh, an altcoin called Pirate Chain, and essentially. During the last crypto um, bear market, the crypto winter, uh, it's one of the many plays that I made where I spent very minimal dollars buying a mining, uh, a uh, an ASIC miner, a mining rig uh, to mine it because I saw potential in it. And I, so basically I invested a little bit of money in this machine. I invested money every month for a uh, few years in electricity and I mined a big stack and I spent maybe $1,200 on that investment. And at Pirate Chain's peak, that investment was worth like one hundred and fifty to one hundred eighty-five thousand dollars. I exited some of that position and held some of it, um, but uh, that is one of many decisions I made over the during the last bear market with um, mining, um, investing in coins I saw potential in, um, all with the end goal and result of just uh, increasing my uh, my Bitcoin stack. That's really cool, Andy. 
I think you're one of the few people who I know personally who runs a mining rig. I think it's really cool to hear about that because it really is almost like kind of like printing your own money. At least in my head, that's how I think of it. Yes, Um, I have a miniaturized Federal Reserve uh, in my house. It's wonderful. (laughs) Decentralized Reserve. And one thing, one little thing I wanted to add to Stephen's question, I'm not sure if it 100% answers it, but I think it comes close. I own a lot of stocks, and I know in the back of my mind, I am very well prepared for the fact that stocks could drop 30 or 40 or 50% in the near term. It could happen. We saw them drop 35% last year, you know, and I wasn't too bothered by it. I knew it might happen, and when it happened, I wasn't too bothered by it. With Bitcoin, that percentage might be 50 or 60 or 70%. And I think if someone has done their research and feels confident in the long run, like the way Andy does and like the way Dave does, and to be honest with you, like the way I do with my 1%, I'm not too bothered by the fact that it might drop 50% in a short time span because I'm holding for the long term. Now, I don't have the confidence to hold quite as big a percentage of my portfolio as Dave or Andy, but that mindset in the back of my mind about how much it could drop if things went poorly does help me maintain my faith for the long term, similarly to the way it does for stocks. Just my two cents. Yeah, I think that's a really I good point. You, uh, you brought that up earlier, too, just the, the conviction. And, the, you know, Shallow Rents has that with his rental properties. He's not going to deviate. You're not going to shake him off that. Just like um, Andy with Bitcoin. Um, and I, I think that's that's a really important lesson, I think, for, for all of us, right? Just to have that asset, have that conviction uh, for a particular asset and see it through. And I think uh, you'll come out a winner at the end. Right. Right. I think that's the whole that's the whole point around portfolio management and why for many people it makes sense to have a diverse portfolio. Because you say if if a certain asset is so risky that its potential downside is going to turn me off, well that means you should have a smaller allocation of that asset. You know, if, if Bitcoin turns you off with its downside, you should have a smaller allocation. If if government bonds make you feel really good because you know there's very little downside. Maybe you have a larger allocation than most. I know Dave is probably cringing, but at the end of the day, it's personal. It's it's a risk allocation mindset, and everyone's going to be a little different. And I commend Andy and Dave for understanding the math and understanding the way it could drop the volatility, and that drives them to say, "I'm accepting the risks." And in the long run, it it should pay off. I I really hope it does pay off for them. Um. With that, I'm going to go around the room one more time for any final thoughts, any final thoughts from our speakers. So, so Shadow, how are you doing, man? I'm good. I feel like I learned a lot. I appreciate uh, Andy and, and Rogers and all of you guys' time for uh, enlightening me on the subject. I'm still, think, uh, still thinking that I'm not touching it. You guys are crazy that I own properties that I can touch and hold and, and burn down if I want. And stuff I own is real, and you guys are crazy, but uh, I appreciate y'all's views. Roger, how about you? This has been great. I mean, it's I, I've learned a lot from you guys as well. Um, for me, I'm kind of um, it, it's the volatility is big for me. That I think that's why I hold smaller positions of it. I, I believe that there is a future, and I think there's you have to be kind of open minded, and that's why I do have a one percent allocation on it. And maybe that'll grow in the future. But for right now, that's pretty much what I'm comfortable with, just based on 
the volatility the volatility that it has. Yep, makes sense. Adam, what are your thoughts? I was just going to uh, kind of piggy what Andy said. It's, you know, I'm not a huge uh, Bitcoin guy, but I obviously like I still have a little bit of it. But I just think the risk to reward is kind of one of those things that you hold that one or two percent allocation of it and, you know, play the long term game and hopefully ends out. On, hopefully ends out on the wrong side, right side. Right, right. Brandon, are you uh, sticking the course with Ethereum for now? Yeah, and I'm also disappointed nobody told me to have fun staying poor during this entire <laughs> conversation. But uh, no, it was a good it was a good conversation. Um, I like that we were able to discuss both sides without anybody, you know, going too nuts. Um, I think everybody made very solid points. So I really enjoyed. Well, we're still going to be live for a couple minutes, so never say never. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Dave, Dave, why don't you go next? Uh, you can have fun staying poor, Brandon. Let's go ahead and rip that band-aid off right now but uh no i think um you know I, I would just take some time if you're interested in bitcoin you know read the bitcoin white paper it's it's really not that long um you know engage with people on twitter uh, i you know to, to brandon's point I, the bitcoin community can be really brutal uh and not fun uh there's a lot of people that are and they've, they've built up a lot of calluses i think over the years with people attacking it and they just go ballistic when anybody has a question, even if it's a valid one. Um, so, you know, just find the po folks that want to talk about it, you know, like, like Andy and I talk about it, we're not mean about it. Um, so, you know, f find the folks that, you know, are interested and want to teach you, want to learn and, and aren't, aren't mean about it. And, you know, just do a little bit of your own research. Thanks, Dave. I want to uh, just give a big thanks to some faces in the crowd who I see who are, who are familiar and even more faces in the crowd who I see who I don't know yet. Thank you guys for calling in and, and listening to this for the past hour. It means a ton to us. But I want to give the last word to, to Andy. Andy, why don't you sign us off? Yeah, thank you for everybody who has listened in, who stuck around. And if you've uh, submitted questions or participated, uh, really, I really appreciate it. We all really appreciate it. Uh, this is a ton of fun to talk about this stuff. It's obviously something uh, some of us are very passionate about, so it's always exciting to chat with um, everyone. Uh, I will end with uh, with this. I think if there's anything in here that piqued your curiosity, if um, if uh, if this got you, if it got if this got the mind kind of uh, running a little bit and thinking about Bitcoin, uh, maybe you don't have an allocation, or maybe you have a very tiny one. And you're thinking about this whole, maybe I should allocate a small percentage um, uh, of my portfolio. Um, I just encourage you just, there's so many resources out there, so many great podcasts, books, um, et cetera. Um, I'm sure many of us are happy to chat with you too. Um, reach out and do the research for yourself. See if there's any personal conviction there that you find for yourself. Um, and then uh, and then I encourage you to, to give it a shot. Um, I think what a lot of people are going to find is if they give 1% allocation um, in their portfolio to something like Bitcoin with such asymmetric um, potential upside that uh, in the upcoming years, they're going to see that 1% um, of their portfolio so far outperform the rest that they're going to wonder why uh, they shouldn't have more of an allocation, 5%, 10% or whatever. Um, I think the potential there is incredible. Um, and I'm excited to uh, be a part of the, the ride, the journey and the community and uh, excited to uh, chat with everybody here. So thanks for taking the, uh, the time to do so. Excellent. Thank you, Andy. Thank you all. All right, everybody. I think that's it. Have a great night.
See you, fellas. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. See you. Have a great night, guys. <laughs> Dollar man, and you will be bought.